Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Art Business Podcast. My name is David Bellingham. I'm Programme Director of the Master of Masters of Art Business in Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. And uh, my guest today uh, has had some connections with the Institute. I think she did a course there. We'll hear about that later. Her name's Dee Hockney. Um, that That is pronounced apparently like the artist David Hockney, but it's an Irish name, and we're no doubt hearing more about Dee's um, Irish um, heritage uh, during during the the podcast. Um, so you're very welcome, Dee. Thank you, Dee. It's great to, great to chat. <laughs> and as usual, I get to start by asking, um, you know, whether you have some kind of favourite urban centre and, and what the reasons for that might be. Sure. Um yeah, city-wise, definitely Cape Town is my favourite city. Um, I spent a lot of time there, both personal and with work, travelling a lot to Cape Town Art Fair. Um, and it's really got a little special place in my heart, particularly for the art scene to start with. Um, uh, Zeiss Maka has been a really great institution. I've done a lot of work there. I did a, installed a, a great work by El Natsui there in 2019. So I got to spend a lot of time. Um, but also the, the other um, art centres and galleries around like Norval Foundation and Stevenson Gallery. And yeah, it just has a has a real place in my heart, my heart for the art scene. Um, but also because it's this beautiful city that's on the coast and has mountains beside it too. So uh, it definitely just has a great vibe as a city. It's got, yeah, that underlying art scene and culture, which I love. So Cape Town is is my go-to city, yeah. Tremendous, yeah. I'm, I'm, and uh, I think my first podcast was actually uh, an alumnus called Craig Brown, um, who, um, who who came from, um, actually, no, he came from Johannesburg from South Africa, mm-hmm. um, but he did his uh, dissertation on, on, on South African arts world and art markets, which was really, really interesting. I still actually send students to it sometimes if they want to do uh, a dissertation on, on, on Africa. Um, and 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 I I know I mean I've never been to South Africa. My, one of my sisters lives there, and for some oh, reason wow. never never got there. But she's always sending photographs in the kind of what I see as a kind of outback uh, yeah, you know, barbecues yeah. and sort of dangerous situations with elephants um, with a <laughs> Range Rover. Do you do, do, is your favourite like non-urban location in South Africa, or would that be somewhere else? Um. I mean, there is lots of places. Yeah, I, I did a lot of cycling um, through Africa. So so a lot of non-urban spaces would be Africa. But I think my favourite would have to go back to to my homeland um, and uh, probably the the, the the island of Inishmore, which is in the Aran Islands, is the most spectacular kind of country place I, I could imagine. And I think a lot of people might know it most recently for being um, part of the film um, location for the Banshees of Inish Aaron, actually. But it's <laughs> it's a beautiful space outside of that. it's It's got this incredible kind of um, natural, but almost looks man-made pool called um, Pulna Pest. And it's a diving space and a swimming space. And it's got loads of lovely cycling roads and horses. Yeah. So Inishmore would definitely be my go-to countryside location, despite lots of other beautiful places I've been lucky enough to be. Yeah, yeah, and there seems to be a general theme running through your bio of um, of loving the sea and being by the sea, and yeah. of course the, the Delaware yeah. Pavilion. If for, for listeners who don't know, it, we'll be talking about it more later, obviously. But sure. one of the spectacular things about that is is its seaside setting on the south coast of England. So we'll talk about that later, perhaps as well. Um, sure. So, 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 Dee, um, moving on from that, um, the the um, do you, do you like buildings? Do you like architecture? Is there a building that you particularly 
love <laughs> yeah I mean one of my great friends is an architect so I kind of have become a bit more obsessed with architecture since he's been studying and graduating but um I'm more interested in kind of ancient architecture I oh, suppose <laughs> my my most my most the building that kind of has left most of an impact on me in, in kind of almost a spiritual way for for fear of going down that route but um is the church of St. George and Lalibela in Ethiopia. So the rock hewn churches that are built in the ground. So spectacular from the outside because you, you, you can't see them. They're completely like camouflaged by being underneath the ground and being carved out of the rock. Um, but also when you enter it, it's this huge, big rock church, um, which has incredible acoustics. Um, and when I visited, I was lucky enough to to witness a ceremony that was kind of in the run-up to Easter um, in the Christian Orthodox um, churches in Ethiopia, um, which had a lot of singing. And it, it, yeah, it's a spectacular building. So if, if yeah, if anyone is ever in Ethiopia, they're incredible to visit. They're, they're complete works of art. Sculptures dug into the ground, incredible, yeah. And when they're singing, what are the acoustics like if you're underground? Incredible. So there's lots of like, kind of um, almost like little uh, channels and little little tunnels that lead into this one central kind of atrium. Um, and the singing in the atrium then reverberates through these little tunnels where people are praying. They kind of sit almost in the rocks as they're praying and kneeling. Um, and it kind of echoes all around. It's it's just incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's... Yeah, it's a really, really interesting building to be in. Yeah. Does anyone have any theories as why they why they are underground? Uh, was it you know you think is this for safety or is it that it's the only way they could actually build a church because they couldn't build it above ground because there wasn't the building material? Uh, it was definitely for safety and to not show that they were worshiping there. So, ah, so what was the there was obviously... look at the landscape um, and it completely just camouflaged that that was actually happening. So yeah, it's. Yeah. It, it was purposely done, let's say. Um, but, you know, I, I read a lot about it before I actually visited, but I never imagined the scale of what they were. Because um, you almost think they're these cave churches and maybe, the you know, there's pictures inside of them being quite low. Um, but then, and the Church of St. George is made in a, in a cross shape. So it kind of looks like little hedge grows on the, on, the, on the hill. And then as you approach, it just goes right down it's all I don't know it's it's like it's like a cathedral as we would imagine um here in the UK that that scale but really completely underground which is incredible yeah. that's incredible I'll tell you what it reminds me of when I I took a group to um modern country Tunisia in North Africa which has a the reason I took them was for the Roman archaeology the Romans were there and um, one of the cities there is very similar. I think it's Bula Regia, and all of the mm. kind of villas and houses there were built into the rock underground. So you've got these curious uh, situation of a, a typical kind of Roman house, like with a, even with like a courtyard, but it's all underground. <laughs> it's <wow>. really <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then um, music. Um, I mean, um, does music play a role in in your life? Um, I'm th I'm thinking as you're from Ireland, obviously, uh, yeah, exactly. you know, Irish music. Or maybe that's a bit of a cli stereotypical cliche. I mean, it's a bit of cliche, but it's definitely true. So I can't <laughs> escape it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely more visual person. Visual arts comes first for sure. me, but music is it definitely embedded in me. I I play the baron, which is the Irish drum. Oh. So lots of sessions when I'm back home, what would happen. Um, and then probably my favourite kind of band at the moment is called The Gloaming, which is a mix of Irish and um, US musicians. So it's really mixing yeah. 
Irish um, folk music with contemporary music, which is... Yeah, I've listened to some of that actually on Spotify. It's amazing. I, I remember when I was at university, I... Uh, this is going to give my age away, but um, I was into very sort of like progressive music, like Pink Floyd mm. and and Yes, and yeah. suddenly punk came and it, it yeah. suddenly became very unfashionable. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it just put the whole thing out. So I then got into like Irish folk music and I was yeah. at Birmingham in the university. It was fantastic. Oh, wow. Not just Irish, you know, English yeah. music as well. Um, and then then I went to, you know, I got so into Irish music scene that yeah. I went to um, Dublin and you might, oh, I wow. know, you know, um, I don't know how well you know London and that culture, but there's 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 a pub called the Half Moon in Putney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they I know. Yeah. gigs, and I remember seeing movie Moving Hearts that will oh be. Oh my god! Wow. I remember seeing them the whole week when they were there, and they they recorded a live. Oh album. wow! And, and That's that, quite special, actually. Yeah, and for the benefit of the listeners, yeah. this was the this was arguably the first time that an Irish band had fused jazz, mm -hmm. uh, traditional folk music. So they had Elan pipes and 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 baron. Yes which is the yeah, drum yeah, they, yeah. Uh, they had a saxophonist and they had a kind of guitarist they had Donald Lunny and you know oh yeah, that was amazing yeah. um so it, it you know I guess oh, both wow. of us are saying what a vibrant culture Ireland is um in 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 all aspects of the arts and I, I I seem to remember that Dublin I don't know if it still has this status but am I right in saying that artists if you can prove you're an artist of any kind you get some kind of tax allowance yeah, yeah, it's it's still quite. I mean, Dublin is such an expensive city now, but it still has that that um, that kind of um, that help for artists, which is really great. You get allowances, you get even support. Um, I believe in in housing, and there's just such amazing grants available all the time as well. So it, <laughs> it still tries to hold on to um, it, its heritage of supporting artists and and be a place of like poets and painters and things like that well any any listeners great. who've never been great. to dublin you you should not just go there for the art gallery and and so on you should definitely go and um go to a, one of the pubs one night where and you'll you'll just find that there are these informal sessions as Dee says she if you can play an instrument she plays the baron the drum you just join in and sit in the corner and there's a there's a fiddler and it's great it's a it's a great crack, as they say. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I, I think that they, they used to have a really excellent music paper called Hot Press. Yeah, yeah, Hot still, Press is still amazing and yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. And I used to get it sent to me in London. Oh, yeah. And one day I was reading and there was this little thing saying, saying amazing new rock band hits Dublin and it's this band called U2. And 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 um, and then they came to London, and I I went to the Hammersmith Palais, which then which is a relatively small venue. I'm not certain it was the first time, and I saw I saw them there. Um, wow, you know, and so yeah. I got back into a new kind of rock music, which was linked to the traditional yeah. music. So it's just interesting the way that one's following of like visual like with visual culture, which we'll exactly. talk more about, obviously. And I I know the Delaware Pavilion that you'll talk about. Um, that. That is kind of quite multicultural in all senses. So it has music and theatre and drama and all sorts yeah. of things going on. Not not only an art gallery, as it were. So mo moving from music, can you remember? Do you have any early memories of of like suddenly realising there was this thing called art? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's an unusual question. I'm trying to always think of like, you know, if there was one catalyst that got me on that. But I think from an early age and maybe like you know 11 12 I, I kind of got it into my head that I wanted to be a photographer but I didn't you know I didn't come from a background a family that were into the arts or we were going to art galleries or anything like that I was in a very very rural location grew up on a farm uh, my mother was a teacher my dad was a farmer 
Um, but definitely there was always um, creativity in our family. Um, my dad makes a lot of things um, in metalwork and woodwork. Um, and uh, my mom, which I'll, I'll kind of go into, which kind of got me interested in contemporary art from Africa, has spent a lot of time in Zambia and um, brought back a lot of art from there. So our house was kind of very well decorated with with art from from Africa um, and art from Kilkenny, the city where I grew up in, because it it also has a quite a vibrant art scene, which is amazing. Um, so at some point in my life, I decided I wanted to be a photographer, and I think it almost as well as being about art, I almost saw the camera as something that could take me places. I was very interested in in travel and seeing the world and photographers that were documenting the world and documenting other cultures were really interesting to me. And I thought if I became a photographer, I could show travel the world and, and kind of do it that way. Um, and I had some great teachers in my secondary school who really supported that, which was great. Um, and a local photographer, Claire Dunn, who really helped me on my my journey to get into uni. So I had I had great people around me around me supporting me, which is which is really um, I look back now and think that I was very lucky, given that um, the arts wasn't, you know, a huge part of my family and it was a real unknown territory and profession to go into. Um, so I'm really grateful for the, for their support. Um, but yeah, photography became the first kind of thing I latched onto. Which was uh, and then, then you actually decided to study um, at undergraduate level uh, photography yeah. in, in Dublin. Was that at Trinity College or University College or another? Um, it was actually at what's called now Technology University Dublin. Ah, that's interesting. That, it's interesting, always... isn't it, in terms of the history of photography, because I'm always telling my, my now very young students, you know, who were babies at the start of the millennium that, you know, Thomas Struth, Gursky, they, yeah. they, these didn't, it, you know, photography, art, art, which happens to be photography, was very difficult before we had mm -hmm. the digital revolution and people could create photographic images that, that, that can compete with paintings for what we call wall power, if you like. Um, so, so that's quite interesting that that course was a tech, so was it quite technical? What did you learn from it? Yeah, it was quite technical. Um, there was only really two BA photography courses in, in Dublin at the time. So it, it was it was a choice of um between mm. IDT, which was a small kind of arts university in Dunleary, and this course with um DIT at the time. Uh, but it was really well placed. So it was above the National Photographic Archive. So it was only the photography course that was placed there, and it was beside the gallery of photography. So really linked with these two important institutions in Dublin at the time. So it was the ideal dream place to be, really. And that's exactly where I wanted to go and um, it was a four-year BA course so quite quite intensive really um, and we did a lot of the first two years were really focused on film so a lot of developing work a lot of camera work a lot of work with Hasselblads which was just as you can imagine <laughs> as if, at that age you were just like incredible a lot of five four work we even did so I'm really grateful of all the, the technical skills I learned at that time but also also, it got me into curatorial practice um, because it was so linked with the gallery of photography. We got to work a lot with curators there. Um, we had a full curatorial module across our third year with a curator called Valerie Connor, who was hugely influential to me and, and still is, which is amazing. Um, and she was one of the leading kind of practitioners um, in the curatorial scene in Ireland at the time. And um, yeah, that kind of got me on my journey towards a more curatorial um, profession. Um, I did some curating of exhibitions in my third year and started like an artist collective with some other students from different courses. So we did, you know, a lot 
in Dublin at the time when we when we didn't have much money. So you know the classic we did, we did lots of like gorilla pop up exhibitions where we just pasted walls with photographs and lots of fun things like taking over shops and putting on exhibitions and that kind of got me to to think about more you know art as a conversation and working with other artists and not just working in my own siloed practice um and that kind of moved me to then straight away after graduating want to go on and, and study curating as, as a master's yeah fantastic and were you, were you um practicing both analog and digital photography yeah yeah so we did both so yeah we did sorry we did a lot of digital then third and fourth year um we had a lot of really quite up-to-date technology at the time um and you know it was in the the age where not everyone was using photoshop so we got to do a lot of work with that produce quite big prints um work a lot with different print houses in dublin which was amazing um but personally i like to stay on the the film side so i i, I remain kind of a love of analog still and um did a lot of developing quite quite big work, which was great. Oh, yeah. What what was your first camera? Do you remember that? Was it when you were a kid or? When I was a kid, what was my first camera? Um, I had, if I think back to my very first camera, which is quite cheesy, was a little camera that reacted to a doll that I had called Susie Snapshot. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was about five. Um, but no, my Susie first Snapchat. camera was actually, it was actually the first kind of digital SLR that um, I could afford, which was a Sony Alpha, which wasn't, you know, was not great in any state or form, but it was a, uh, an SLR and it was it was amazing to me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember when I was a kid, um, I had a, a Kodak brownie. Yes, yes, yes. Black and white film in. Um, yeah. and, and, and I took pictures when we used to visit Spain and Italy and so on. I don't know if I've even got any of them anymore, little black and white pictures, obviously. And then then I remember when I was when I was doing my research in um, Pompeii and Herculaneum, um, I had like an Olympus OM10. This is pre-digital. Yeah. So the only way I could record these wall paintings was um, I used to take prints and colour slides uh, yeah. because you never know, knew whether, you know, you were you were only really allowed into these places. You couldn't go back to them, you know, for the research because they were close to the public. So it was really difficult if it didn't come out properly. You'd have to ask, can I go back and re-photograph? And I, I don't, you know, a lot of the listeners will be of, you know, your generation and 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 and, and younger and they they will never have had to suffer that problem. And the other day we had to move offices in the institute, and I I had a whole cupboard of oh transparencies, and yes. I didn't know what to do with them. And I thought, look, I'm never going to use these again. I really don't know what to do with them. But with a heavy heart, I just threw them away. Oh and my god! Made probably a couple of thousand color <laughs> slides, which of course we used to use for our lectures. Hence PowerPoint yeah, still yeah, talking slides. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, when I was in secondary school, I got a Konica Minolta, which was the first film camera, um, and yes. that was amazing. And yeah, my my poor parents still suffer in storing all my film that I've taken over the years yeah. at home. Takes up um, a lot of space. It takes a lot of space, <laughs> and I have a little a dark room still at home. But so yeah, they they do a lot. <laughs> so having got really immersed in photography and its techniques and displaying the idea of curating art and a dialogue with the public through through maybe mainly photographic art. I think, did you then move to London? Because I think you then did a course at the Sotheby's Institute in Chinese Contemporary Art, maybe with Katie? Um, so that was actually afterwards. So I moved first okay. to Falmouth to do my MA. Oh, then you went to Falmouth. Then. I went straight to Falmouth, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and for the listeners, Falmouth is in the south coast of Cornwall? In the exactly, southwest. yeah, quite far down, um, on close quite to uh, Saint Ives. If, if yes, you want exactly. to, yeah, we take yeah. our students to Saint Ives at the moment every year for for to, you know to do curating and to visit. Yeah. So Falmouth is on the other side 
it's on the other side exactly exactly Exactly. and in fact my my previous guest um was he he went to university um jack uh, he he went to he went to university at falmouth to study fine art and in fact i've i've got paintings from st ives where that everyone seems to study in Falmouth, you know, and it, uh, <laughs> it, it could be textile embroideries, all sorts of arts. It's a one. It sounds like a wonderful place. Yeah. So, it do was, you want to talk, talk yeah. about um, maybe say a little bit about about the experience of? Oh no, you went to Falmouth next, and you did a master's degree. Is that right? Yeah, I did my master's in curatorial practice, which um, is a course that's sadly not running now anymore in Falmouth. But at the time, it was a really good critical course. It was. Um, it was quite low in numbers, so I think my course had about um, eight students on it, wow. which was very interesting to me because it was a really lot of, um, you know, you got a lot of one-to-one tutorial time, which was yeah. really good. Um, and at the time, the course was run by Virginia Button, who was creator of the Turner Prize for many years, a great curator and writer. Um, and the yeah, the course had was very linked with St. Ives, so with the Tate. Um, we had a couple of live projects we did with them, so that was really amazing on a practical level to get to work with Tate, which I don't think, um, you know, sometimes those opportunities don't come unless you're in that small location. We were the only eight curators learning at the time, looking for experience and really um, keen to get involved. So the opportunities were there for us, which were amazing. Um, and then also created a show at Newland Art Gallery, which is in Penzance, so quite further down, um, which is also quite um, quite an important contemporary art gallery there as well. Um, so yeah, it was a really it was a really amazing course, but also as you mentioned, there's just there was such a, a hub of artists and of energies there at the time from across all the other courses, um, and all really contained together. And again, got to work um, set up an artist collective again with some other students got to do lots of different live projects across music and art which is interesting as well um and we also had we're very lucky to have a lot of really great guest lecturers we had did a lot with Charles Esch the curator as well um so it was it was a really I would say a really steep learning curve for me but learned so much from it and I think it really set me up in in quite a practical way as well to be able to work on a curatorial level yeah so it wasn't just like um, theoretical curating. There was a lot of logistical. There was a lot of logistical stuff, stuff which at, at the time I remember feeling, um, wondering, you know, how it was beneficial. You know, we had a show at Newland where um, I had an artist who had a lot of digital projection work and I ended up doing a lot of technical work to install the whole thing. And, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, what, what is the point of this? But it all really stood to me. It was incredible. Um, we did have a lot of the theory side as well. We were really pushed in that side. Um, my MA project was a thesis and that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. But it was great to get the practical elements. Um, and as I say, working with Tate doing, you know, presentations so the director there on uh, you know proposed exhibitions that we would do in the space but also learning a lot about engagement which kind of has stood to me throughout my career as well and how you know presenting work to a particular audience and really thinking of context um and that kind of thing so uh yeah yeah I would say practically it really set me up quite quite well for my career yeah and again another kind of seaside uh, yeah uh, exactly and yeah. after which, um, I, I, you need to fill in the details of this, but I think, I think the next kind of big thing, as it were, is you moved to, um, to London and and and, and yeah. working at the yeah. photography gallery. So, yeah. can you explain yeah. how that came about? Sure. So, yeah, graduated and then then moved to London to be in the heart of it. Um, 
during yeah during my MA my thesis was kind of looking at the necessity of the specialist photographic gallery and looking at that kind of boundary between where photography fits in contemporary art and I was lucky enough to actually um, spend some time with Brett Rogers who was director of the photographers gallery at the time um, and she helped me a lot with my thesis and interviewed me so hugely um, generous with her time to me so when I moved to London that's the kind of space I really wanted to be in this kind of mix of photography and curation um, and I was lucky enough to get some work there um, just as a visitor assistant to begin with leading tours but really nice to be kind of on the ground and like hearing what was happening and being amongst all that um, but I was only there for a short time about eight months um, and I got the opportunity to move to October Gallery which was um, a more permanent role um, at the time so that kind of shifted me in that direction then yeah. And thinking about the October Gallery, my 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 experience of it, it's a most it's a great gallery, um, and it um, it represents a lot of uh, African art artists, I, I I think, and I I think at yeah. some point you also did a course in Chinese contemporary, so maybe you could yeah. say something about had had you had you not experienced that kind of diversity of non-Western previously, and that's what you wanted to do, or had you and you just wanted to explore that further. I think um, it was it was always a bit ingrained in me, as I mentioned, um, my mom always had an interest in, in art from the continent after having lived there. So that was always kind of in the background of my upbringing. Um, but I hadn't really studied it a whole lot apart from personal research. So I had um, done, a, a, you know, had a lot of interest myself in, in artists from the African continent. So when I moved to October Gallery, that was that was a huge achievement for me. It was a place that was of interest to me. I'd always followed the work of big artists like Anna Natsui over the years. Um, and so getting the job there was great. But, you know, October Gallery, although it's most well known for for representing artists from Africa, it, it really has an outlook of looking at um, artists um, across the non-Western. So it has a lot of really amazing artists from Asia, which I hadn't much experience in. So um, really starting to work at October Gallery first, you know, working as, as assistant curator and then moving on to curator, I really wanted to expand my knowledge really. Um, and um, Dr. Katie Hill, who's, who's a great lecturer now at Sotheby's, was running um, the Chinese uh, contemporary Chinese art in the market course and um, she had brought lots of her students to visit some of the shows that I put on and she really um, encouraged me to kind of develop in that direction so I was very lucky to get on a course with her and and learn a lot from her because you know that really the history I wanted to know the kind of I was working with contemporary artists um, from China, like uh, Qian Wei and Wan Huang Zheng, who's a great curator as well. Um, but to understand kind of the legacy of where they had come from, I really wanted to do. And that's kind of what I had the opportunity to learn on the on the course and to, to understand that the history of art throughout China and, and why it is where it is now. And the, the surgeons in the art market at the time when I did the course, um, Chinese art was really um, kind of to the, to the heights of the markets and really had a lot of attention. So it was great to study how that came about so that was yeah really beneficial yeah and listeners um well you can look these up obviously uh photographers gallery is obviously right in the middle of things near near Oxford Circus and the um and the October gallery is in a really interesting space uh near Russell Square that's probably the nearest yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of between Russell Square and Holborn. Um, yeah. It's on Gloucester Street. Um, but I mean, it was established in 1979. So really, yes. it has a kind of long history of, of really wanting to, to, to be quite avant-garde and pushing artists that, that weren't really getting attention and supporting artists that, that really weren't getting, weren't getting that support and were maybe seen a bit as outsider art or um, really had, had no backing in terms of like literature or, or where their art was being placed in a context. Um, apart from purely being saying that they were from a certain place so it really has um has been quite a catalyst and quite a quite a leading in in, in pushing actors yeah I think I think it was the first place I took students and we saw a lot of El Elenatsui if I remember right yes. yeah yeah he's obviously now a household name and yeah, exactly. Museum, I remember them purchase one and uh I think probably Tate yeah. and, and, and and so on um yeah, so, yeah. so the um so you within two years you you'd become curator at October yeah. Gallery. Can you talk about yeah. how that happened? Yeah, I mean, I I was very lucky, I suppose, to work very closely with Elizabeth Lalushek, who's the artistic director there, who um really w was the kind of um and still is an amazing curator in pushing these artists. Um, so I got to work very closely with her, and I think um my the kind of experience I gained from my from my MA in curatorial practice and really quite on the ground work kind of helped me moving from assistant curator and the curator at the time um, uh, left and went to, to the back to the Netherlands and it was an opportunity and I think um, I think at the time Elizabeth gave me uh, a chance to kind of do it in a temporary basis until you know and the guys that maybe they hired, so hired someone else so I jumped at that chance um, and then yeah got offered it as a permanent position afterwards which was really really great yeah and just got to work with some incredible artists. What was was that the first time you'd curated that you presumably then went on to curate shows very much from your own oh. viewpoint? Um, obviously, yes. with, maybe with a team, but could you talk yes. what was your first curatorial experience there? And could you want to talk about that? Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of what my first show was. <laughs> or, I think, or just think, first... of, think of the yeah. favorite, you know, favorite one, yeah. Um, <laughs> Obviously, working with Ellen Asui is amazing. Probably my favorite show was working with an artist called James Barner. Um, yeah. So got to know James Barner's work. And at the time, his work was really relatively unknown. James is a photographer from Ghana. He's now had a major retrospective um, a couple of years ago at Serpentine Gallery, which is amazing. But when I first met James, everything was as you mentioned, slides and and reels of film and negatives and everything were all in just in, in huge boxes around his very small um, room in London in, in sheltered accommodation. And I just was in awe at the images that he had made. Um, he had a gallerist in, in Paris who was starting to, to, to get his work seen a little bit, but he was relatively unseen and unknown. So meeting him, I, I knew that he had a place at October Gallery and um, that, you know, it would be great to show his work, but it was a huge project because um, a lot of his work wasn't scanned or it wasn't developed. So we had to spend a lot of time going through his archive and instantly just trying to preserve as much as we could. Some of his work sadly had got, you know, got some damage to it, but we tried to, to do a lot of work with it. And so did a show with him and a photographer that sadly passed away, Daniele Tamagni, who's an Italian photographer who um, actually did quite a lot of um, digital contemporary work with the um, um, with uh, in the Congo, really looking at the Congolese men there and the way they dress, um, and the the sakuras of Congo, um, and so 
I curated this show with the kind of the dynamic of Daniele and then of James Barner and the style he did in Ghana um, back in the in the 60s and 70s against the kind of more contemporary work of Daniele with choosing these really vivid digital photographs of the supporters in, in, in Brazzaville in, in Congo. Um, so that was quite an important show. And, and Brett came and opened the show, which was really great. And it was the first time that James got to have a lot of attention and got to show his work um, in a space like that. So that I think that was it. 2015 maybe um so that was quite an important show for me definitely and that kind of that, that kind of exhibition material now that's about eight years ago um mm. now we've got like websites for galleries um would would um i think galleries are archiving these these exhibitions now would 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 listeners be able to find that exhibition and see some of the images yeah. yes yeah i think they would i think yeah. on october gallery it would it would be possible yeah. to view that exhibition um yeah. i think if you go um to james barner on our website or daniele yeah. then you see the yeah. history and click on the specific show that we did at that time so yeah you yeah. should be able to see images of it which is great yeah. and again it's something that something really recently has happened that it, you know that there, when I was like your age, that you know, if you mm. wanted to, if you heard about this artist called Andy Warhol, you had to find a book in a library, and that wasn't always yeah. easy, you know. know. If you, <laughs> so it's just strange that now you can. I think my students often don't realize how lucky they are to be able to kind of access virtually anything that they yeah. want on the exactly. internet, and, and obviously it was it was a different kind of fun, <laughs> and in yeah. some ways it made life easier, sort of the kind of a whole analog world, but uh, more, in some ways more exciting, you had to you had to travel mm -hmm. and you had to look and you know, yeah. everything has really, really changed on that level. And uh, yeah, so so um, so from October Gallery, you you your next move was to what you're now doing, which is to become the head of learning at uh, the, the Delaware Gallery. And so, so I know that that was um, that was born in nineteen in the nineteen thirties and nineteen thirty five. Mm -hmm. uh, during, I, I guess by then, I'm thinking Virginia Woolf, like post World War One. I, I guess then we're 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 all we're pretty much into modernism as a as a cultural movement. Um, and and I and the building is a wonderful example of, of that modernism. Um, I can never remember the name of the two architects, but they I don't think they have like. English sounds, British sounding names. Yeah, yeah, it's Eric, Eric Mendelssohn and Sir Shamanoff. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, you hopefully you would know their names because presumably <laughs> that comes into into your, yeah. your, your teaching learning program. So, do you, I think every I I would imagine a lot of the listeners, including a lot of my current students, who I know listen to podcasts and alumni. A lot of them probably haven't been to the Delaware Pavilion, so maybe you could say something about it and why they should go. You know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the starting point is quite an iconic building, as you mentioned. So, like, really, it's almost seen as one of the first modernist buildings in the UK. Yeah. So, um, if if people see pictures of it, probably. Quite, what's quite recognizable is this huge cantilever staircase that's part of it. So lots of really streamlined shapes, quite industrial influence design as a building. Um, as you mentioned, it was, um, yeah, it's set up and it was built in 1935. Um, the 9th Earl Delaware did a competition actually, which is quite interesting at the time um, and advertised it in the architectural journal. Um, so lots of different architects submitted different plans um, and the kind of rough scope of the project was it had to have a kind of a, an entertainment hall, a restaurant, a reading room. Um, and the architects that we mentioned won the design really 
quite leading figures in the modernist movement as well um and built this this huge huge building which as you can imagine i mean even now it feels like um almost sticks out amongst the architecture of Exhill. Exhill is quite a small town placed kind of in between Hastings and Eastbourne, um, really seaside town. Um, but this huge building was seen as to be kind of what's what we still like to live up to as being the people's pavilion. So as being a space for health and well-being for people to come together and experience art, culture, um, at the time reading as well and um over the years has almost had 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 sport elements to it but since about 2005 it um, has had funding from the arts council and has firmly established itself as a contemporary arts center we have um two exhibition spaces we have a huge auditorium where we have a, a quite a, a big live program um so people like Kay tempest and flaming lips have been there last year this kind of um um, performers um, and then we have a great great learning program so it kind of it has almost has a basis of being a cultural center in the same way um, if, to give people an example as, as the Barbican it has like this live element is music element but it has also has a contemporary art gallery um, and it also is just a kind of an amazing space to be in we've got this incredible restaurant that looks right out over the seafront and um, we've got a rooftop space which we do um, outdoor music on in the summer and outdoor um, events we sometimes had have sculptures there over the years we have lots of outdoor sculptures sometimes we just installed a large sculpture um, by an artist called Shabalala Self um, so so that's incredible. So there's kind of a lot of things going for it. But as you as you mentioned at the start, David, it really it's it's really right on the seafront. Um, so it's it's it has this huge kind of view and um, it's almost something we always have to, you know, relate to that context whenever we're programming, because it, it, it the sea is such a part nearly almost of the building. Um, but yeah, really seen as a modern building um, and we tried to show uh, a, quite a range of, of really renowned contem contemporary international artists, um, but also some modern artists over the years. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> it's hard to know where to, to, to expand. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. Just just um, just winding back a little bit in terms of yeah. so so in terms of looking at this through an art business lens as it were um sure. this my students would need to know this is in terms of finance and the financing of the building it's a charitable trust so it's a not-for-profit yes you know yes. and um and then it it relies on um arts council money which is coming from british tax players um yeah. but do you get any other kind of monetary funding coming in yeah, so yeah, primarily we're an MPO, which is great. We got our MPO status again um, yeah. this year, which is brilliant. So a lot of money from the Arts Council, as you said. We also get funding from um, Rother District Council, which is our local council. Sure. Um, but then we do, we get, get smaller funds then for, for different specific projects. So for for, for my programme, I get a lot of um, funds for, for different groups that I work with. So um, I have a young refugee group uh, of creatives and, and that has a particular sum of money. Um, we do um, arts and music work with adults with various neurodiversities and learning disabilities. We put on big um, uh, events and concerts and, and do um, art exhibitions with them. And that has specific pools of money. Um, and then some of we had did a big schools project on equality, diversity, inclusion and non-Western artists. And that had another pot of money. So 
things kind of come from from different places but primarily the core funding is arts council and rather district council but um this year um we we got to announce which is really exciting for us and you're going to see a lot of things coming from delaware hopefully it'll get more and more um, on, on people's um, wavelength and more people will visit because we got um, awarded, rather District Council got awarded 19 million um, for community creativity and skills from the Leveling Up Fund from LUF and um, that will contribute to a lot of change in the Delaware Pavilion, which is hugely exciting for us, yeah. Yeah, the Leveling Up programme for, for listeners who maybe aren't aware of British mm -hmm. politics, this is this... Yeah. this thing where the, 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 the Tory government, they won a lot of seats in the north that is um traditionally sort of socialist labor voters and um but it's kind of on a promise that they would level up and they put more money take money away from the south and particularly london the metropolis and put it into non non south areas in particular so it's it's good yeah. to see that you're 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 profiting if i may use that word from that yeah, yeah so, of course, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah and it's it's great for us too because it gets um it's also working to to build a creative hub in Sydney, which is um a kind of a, a district of Brex Hill, which is quite quite high deprivation and quite a disadvantaged community. But for us, we've always tried to be doing work out there, um, but we never really had a space. And now there's going to be a creative hub built there, which is which is going to be hugely beneficial for the area. So it's it's really, it's really exciting time for the Delaware Pavilion and Bex Hill. Yeah. And and it's part of a pattern, I would say, um, in the in the early millennium, where we we had seaside towns that used to really thrive in the nineteen sixties. I remember going to them myself when I was a kid. You know, you didn't you didn't go to Spain and you didn't fly to Spain and Italy. It's far sure. too expensive. Then suddenly, yeah. of course, in the in the in the seventies, probably you get free, you get cheap flights. Developing a lot of those English seaside towns on the south coast, partly because of the weather, um, yeah. although they're incredibly charming, as I'm sure you're agreed to. Um, they 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 really suffered um, socially yeah. and financially, economically. Yeah. And Mar Margate yeah. and Folkestone, I'm thinking of in particular, the Folkestone yeah. Triennial Arts, uh, yes. You know, yes. and and then of course Margate with the Turner Gallery. Um, mm -hmm. the, these are regeneration process pro projects yeah. sort of focused on 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 art events and art galleries. But what's interesting about about uh, Betts Hill is that the Delaware Pavilion obviously dates back pre all of that. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's true. But I think, um, I think, as you mentioned, I think, as we all know, COVID has had a massive um, influence in lots of things. But I've really noticed it um, with St. Leonard's where I live and in Hastings and, and, and Bexhill as well, the kind of the influx of artists coming out of London and starting to work here, which I think will will see it a change and, be, and, and, and change in the ecology of the arts here as well. And you mentioned the, the kind of the big hitter of things that are happening, but really on a ground level, you can see a lot of things happening. There's lots of smaller little galleries that are opening up with really quite, really um, quite important work being shown, um, lots of events that are happening, lots of little um, art fairs that are, are happening. And I think it really will see that kind of shift um, over the years that, that what's happening now, really. Um, so lots of artists have come down and had lot, there's lots of more studios, um, even with us in Becks Hill, the Delaware was on its own for a, a long time um, with, with on the artsy, contemporary art scene. And now there's a really great space called Beaching Road Studios, which has about 20 artist studio spaces, a Flatlands Gallery, there's um, a ceramics studio, Common Clay, a bookbinding studio, and another artist's whole studio taking over another industrial space in the, in the old ambulance station. So there's all this kind of excitement happening, which um, is always 
great to see how how that will develop as well um and of course we have the the turner prizes now coming to towner and eastbourne which is very close to us in bex hill so there's going to be a lot of focus i think on on the southeast coast here um in in the coming years so i i do really i do really recommend anyone who's interested to kind of see um places that are changing or things that are emerging to, co to come and visit it's it's quite it's quite exciting i think at the moment and that would fit in with our, hopefully, most of the listeners will share a, a, a strategy, a personal strategy for sustainability, uh, sure. removing your carbon footprint. So why not yeah. go on your holidays back to the south? Because we used to have yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of these places are still have these kind of kind of kind of slightly cheesy traditional sort of, you know, amusement arcades and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so on. But it, it, it is I, I think that you can still have a good time there. And, you know, obviously you can be unlucky with the weather, but. Yeah, uh, that's changing as well. <laughs> in the southeast, here are these and kind think... of exotic butterflies, and you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I think also um, a lot of people um, can see kind of outside of London as maybe not being um, as diverse in terms of. Um, a culture and 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 population but also in terms of the arts but it's really interesting what's happening here at the moment there's a really amazing exhibition at Hastings Contemporary at the moment called We Out Here um we also have an exhibition called Up in Arms and it's really kind of looking at at, at the diversity of artists that are working here and um the diasporas that they're they're coming from and what they're commenting on and I think you know there's there has been a huge influx that, that we really acknowledge we work quite quite closely with an organization called the Buddy Refugee Project. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, setting up these groups called the Young, Creat Young Refugee Creators. There's, there's been a lot of influence and change in, in the diversity of the population here. And um, that's also quite interesting for the art scene and the artists that are working and the work they're making is, is very different to what we probably would have imagined as um, seaside locations being maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And of course, there's it is in an area where there's a there's there is the political debate. This is where refugees are coming uh, uh, across the Channel from France, bless them, yeah. and uh, usually yeah. landing, I think, probably further east at Dover, Folkestone. But yeah. I'm sure that yeah. that is part of discussion of, of uh, in the in the pubs yeah. and in the cultural. Uh, yeah. But presumably, yeah. a lot of your a lot of your artists, when you talk about diversity, are people growing up in the in the area or are they moving out of place that like the conurbations like London and coming to places like Betts Hill and Hastings you know or is it a mix um, it's a total mix it's a total yeah. mix which is great um a lot of um a lot of the young people who who study quite locally um stay because they cannot can afford more to buy to come to London <laughs> they can't afford to come to London and as I said it seems um maybe in the last five years there's opportunities for them to be here as I mentioned these smaller right. galleries that are that are setting up um they're really there's there's a chance for them to do stuff here which they wouldn't get to in London um mm. but there is a, a yeah a real influx of people coming 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 back coming down from London who maybe have spent time away and are coming back to Hastings so it's a it's a total mix but it seems like um yeah there's a there's the, the the kind of the foundation of the artists which have always been kind of around Hastings with this new kind of influx and that's that's quite exciting yeah is is there a threat as there sometimes is when these things happen of gentrification and pricing out of like yeah. artists yeah. who move there because it is an easy place to live and yeah. afford is definitely, that definitely. There, there's definitely those tensions um particularly prices went up during during pandemic time pandemic, for rent. everyone i could i could see that that was a place i'd be looking you know let's yes. second home you know exactly uh, exactly away from london yeah yeah yes, yeah so that, 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 well. 
yeah that's a real that is a real strain on the community and that is that is a tension but it feels it feels a bit as it's leveling out a bit now I suppose with people returning to work you know commuting from Hastings is is not something you would want to do every day it's not as yeah. easy as Margate or Brighton it's, it is yeah. that bit longer so yes. the kind of um the people that have moved here the people who kind of want to stay um yes. there is there is that seems to be that 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 acknowledgement of of the local communities and the want to kind of give back but there there was a there was a couple of years of like really you know classic cafes popping up and other local businesses then kind of doing worse so you, you do have that tension and yeah. it's um it's it's a it's a it's an ongoing kind of argument of 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 what what is best but it feels to be it feels to be leveling out a bit but you know it's it's difficult yeah it's still it's, it's just you know, sort of creating a balance it's creating a balance isn't it and uh you trying know, to create yeah. A balance. yeah exactly and it's you know it's trying to you know to, to to kind of have that 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 will that if people are coming here that they're working here and that they're they're doing things that are part of the community and they're they're acknowledging the communities that are here which is hugely important um because as I, as i mentioned there's a lot of um deprivation in in the in, in the outskirts even some of um some of the young people i work with have never even been to the seaside even though it's so close to them and much less they have been to an institution like the Delaware Pavilion so we're really talking about people that are quite quite isolated um and it's yeah it's 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 the hope that the work that's happening will 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 help them to get more integrated into into their locality but also into the arts and hopefully provide opportunity and skills in that way yeah so as head of learning presumably part of your mission is to make Delaware Pavilion as welcoming as as possible to to anyone uh, yeah. because you know we all know we we've all we all know about arts that is all very well for us who've grown up and and love art etc cetera, etc cetera, yeah. and we're lucky maybe to come from families that took us to art and archaeology um but but it's um it can be quite difficult i think for 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 people who haven't grown up in that to feel welcome even into a museum you know we all know museology the british museum with its big classical columns forbidding place but how does delaware sort of you know as and as head of learning how do you embrace as many people as possible yeah, yeah that's 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 a really good point because that's really the, the challenge and you know we mentioned this great modernist building but as i say it 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 really sticks out in the architecture of Bex Hill and it can seem like it's a space where, you know, you, maybe you're not supposed to be or you don't know how to act when you go in there. Um, if you've never been to a gallery and that, you know, there isn't, it's one of the biggest galleries in South Southeast Coast, but if you if you haven't even been to Eastbourne or Hastings and you won't have been to another space. So that that's always that's always the challenge. Um and you know. Quite, I'm quite proud that that the exhibitions are always completely free at Delaware Pavilion, so we mm -hmm. never touch, which is amazing. And that's not, you know, that's not something that's a, that's a standard. So, so a lot of people can feel like they need money to instantly come in. Whereas, um, the Pavilion, we're quite proud that we don't have to charge for exhibitions, and we do a lot of really free, creative, engagement work. We have, you know, lots. Our speciality is our art Sundays, where anyone can come in and just um, make an art um, session on the day and work with great local artists. Um, so that that's our biggest challenge to get people into the building, but kind of how how we work it is we have a great outdoor space as well just right in front of the seaside between us and the seaside there's these beautiful lawns we have quite a lot of outdoor festivals that happen there like I mentioned before um and we do lots in the summer lots of our art activities outside and then that kind of bridges the gap a bit people come to those because guess what they they're okay with going to the seafront and they know what's required of them when they go there so they don't mind going onto the lawns and experiencing something um and then you know it bridges that gap of oh I've done that outside the pavilion I don't mind going in and doing it 
Um, and it's quite important for us. You know, we're bringing quite big names. Like we had an amazing show last year by Zaneb Zadira, um, who obviously won a prize to Venice Biennale. And mm. it's great for us to show her work to, you know, people who would never get to see, um, maybe never get to see contemporary artists like that. So it was amazing to be to be working with audiences that could have the opportunity to experience that and getting them in. And um, I suppose it's about, um, you know, working with interpretation and, you know, making sure that we make the work as accessible as possible for those who are, you know, coming down from London to see the work, but also for 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 our communities around us. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's really good when people meet the artists. Exactly. I've always thought that's so important because if you if an artist, yeah. you know, if an exhibition is curated by a living artist and then they're not there, I think that the works become somehow not for me, you know, forbidding. Whereas I think if you're if you've got artists as you sounds as though you do, like working with people on Sundays and so on, people realise these people are just like them. You exactly. Know? Exactly. That, and artists are, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes exactly. we present it as this other thing and it just isn't like that. Shouldn't be like exactly. that. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, how many how does your staff structure work? How many can you do you know have you can you give those figures of how many people are like full time in the pavilion? Yeah. Um, oh, and I think a full time we have like across the whole board, we have about um, 70 people that work with us. 70, but say, wow. Yeah, but that that crosses everything. That's that the whole, that's the, the whole. stewards, the cafe, yeah, 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 yeah. all yeah. stuff like that. So we have huge yeah. teams. But maybe I could break it down. We have like three, um, we have three directors, director yes. of operations and external relations and our, our main director, Stuart Drew. Um, and then we have programming teams um, just to give people an idea of how these kind of structures work. So we have um, a head of a head of live, a head of exhibitions and a head of learning. Um, and then from that, we have teams that work with us. So we we all have about um, three to five people that work directly on our teams in, in sense of actually programming um, and setting up the program. Um, but then it expands from that. We have a marketing team, finance team fundraising team um and um and then all the team that work on the ground our gallery assistants our technicians um as i said so we have a you know a great shop which people love as well we've got the whole gift shop and we've got a huge box office team that do all the, the gigs um so that that's kind of how how we operate um but it it it, it while it may seem like a lot of staff when it actually comes down to the programming side we're we, we're quite on the ground and, and thin on on who we have working so we we need to achieve quite a lot for what we do yeah so we're so you work as I say you have to work quite hard but but yeah. um, what I was going to ask as well is um the cafe the bookshop the restaurant are they outsourced or are they part of the they're all internal so yes. yeah all internally done which is which is really interesting because sometimes yeah. other organizations that's our outsource but yeah the cafe and and the shop and everything is all part of the Delaware so and, and quite yeah, local so quite local as well therefore because yeah, somewhere exactly. like the National Gallery you know the, I think their cafes restaurants are definitely outsourced and um and, and so on so that can create yeah. problems in moving money from that into the charity and you know there you yeah. go. It's, no, it's lovely it, to know that it's actually all, all, all your own stuff. It's all part of it, and that that makes it quite nice because then you know we get to work with the cafe team if we have a specific artist that might have you know some kind of specific links to 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 a, a specific food or drink. We yeah, get to the themes also as well. So <laughs> it kind of yeah, I think it works quite well to give people a full experience when they yeah. come. Yeah. And, and so what's the future do you like just the immediate future this summer 
I, I had a look at the yeah. website. I, I must come down, obviously, and see these shows. They look amazing. It, the listeners should look at the website. I will put the link on the um, podcast uh, material. But um, this summer, anything particularly that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm really looking forward. So we have Mohammed Sami is coming. So we have a huge painting show um, by Mohammed Sami. The works are coming from Canton Art Centre. So some people yeah. might have seen some of the works there, yeah. but we're showing some unseen works as well. Um, and uh, yeah, getting to show them in quite quite a large space, which is amazing. Um, and then also Katie Cudden, so a ceramicist um, in a way, um, Richie from London. So we're getting to show her work. Um, lots of work that hasn't been on scene, a really new work that she's made, commenting a lot on kind of her experience as a mother and working at night and working at different times of day um, and kind of the tension between objects and ceramics. Um, so that's going to be super interesting as well, which is so really two really quite exciting shows. And then in the autumn time, we have um, a big show across, spanning across our two galleries by Helio Lucier, um, a Brazilian artist, which is really exciting. Incredible yeah. diversity, and and of course the one the one th it reminds me of Tate's and Eyes, which is another gallery on the sea, and much more recent, of course. Yeah. Um. Uh, but um, of course in summer in summer the London art world closes down, particularly in August. Yeah. Whereas obviously you're you're doing quite a lot in places like yeah. St Ives, Falmouth, and and Betts Hill, because there's a lot of um. Uh, seaside visitors uh, coming exactly. down to exactly so... that's our prime time so our biggest spot is all <laughs> in summer however with Turner Prize coming now in, in the autumn it's going to be quite focused that's as well exciting so, and I think everyone should so make exciting. an effort if you're you know if listeners are thinking about visiting um the, the Delaware at Betts Hill um that might be a good time to go actually when the Turner Prize will be will be yeah. down there so be, exactly. that'd be really good um yeah. so um, yeah, I think actually I, one one last question because um, the I probably I usually I'm starting to post like video versions of these podcasts and I'm sure that anyone watching the video will want to know what that amazing work is behind me so maybe you could say a little bit about that yeah this so this is a work by lady scully um i'm not sure if i mentioned it so it's an artist from cape town yeah. um this is a work she did actually with tyburn gallery in london which um now isn't uh running the director um is working for goodman Ga gallery actually yeah. um, but it was a huge wall piece that she did um and it was influenced by the cohen san um cave paintings in south africa um but Lady Scully is probably my my favorite artist. This is a print of the wall sculpture that she did, um, and she now is an artist. Which she has um, she designed one of the coins for the South African currency. So quite a really interesting artist that looks a lot of gender and identity and kind of politics of lust and things like that. So yeah, she's <laughs> kind of my icon behind me always. <laughs> which is and is it is it like some kind of primeval goddess? Um... Yeah, so it's looking at um, a society that was quite matriarchal, where 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 women were always quite in power. Yeah. Um, so uh, around the kind of um, Afro halo, kind of in her head, you'll see all these kind of male figures that she's kind of holding close. <laughs> um, but she she and also the kind of the number of arms and stuff refer to these these drawings, these really ancient drawings mm -hmm. by the Kohen people. Um, but she also uses fruit, kind of quite phallic, um, kind of nods to different gender as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's an amazing image. I wish I could see it more closely. But anyway, um, Dee, it remains for me to thank you very much for being a guest today. You certainly you. whetted my appetite to get down to the sea and yes, um, great. To have a bit of culture uh, uh, as yeah. well. And I, I, I wish you well and the, and the pavilion well. And, the, you know, I think that your your mission is, is amazing. 
um, it's diverse, it's inclusive, and um, you know, wish wish you well. And I'm sure some of the listeners will will, will come down uh, and, and brilliant. see brilliant. Yeah, so thank you, you very much thank for you. for being a guest today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, David.